Good evening, everyone. If you could turn to Romans chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I wanted to um, say thank you to Dan, who um, allowed me to teach tonight. He was supposed to be the one uh, up here, but he allowed me to take his spot since he got to preach last Sunday morning. So I I do appreciate that. Um, So thank you. Um, And also, wanted to tell you, uh, tonight we're going to be talking uh, Romans chapter 12. And we recently finished our series from Romans 12 and our student on our Wednesday nights. Um, It took since we started in October and we just finished. Um, To be fair, I don't teach every week and we had some holidays in there. So that's why it took so long. Um, But we we went through the uh, uh, chapter of Romans 12 and we got to a portion from verses 9 through 21 that talks about the effects of the gospel. So Paul kind of gives a detailed, uh, these are the effects of the gospel on a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what happens. Uh, we had part one, we looked at verse nine, and we, the point of that was to love for real, hate evil, and cling to Jesus. We looked at part two, which was 10 through 13, uh, and that we learned that the gospel changes how we love each other, how we serve the Lord, how we endure, and how we serve others. Part three was the gospel changes how we treat our enemies and gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto others. Tonight, I'm going to teach part four, and then this past week, we finished part five, which is the gospel transforms us into agents of grace and mercy and causes forgiven people to forgive and loved people to love. So you might be asking, why, are, why am I doing part four? Like, why am I just picking a part in the middle and presenting it as its own message? And the reason I'm doing that is because uh, I'm going to be covering some things that are happening in our culture, in our society, in our world I'm going to go a little bit deeper tonight than I did with the students. And the reason I'm doing that is to make you aware of the things that our students are being taught, excuse me, at school and in colleges, and Christians are being taught in churches in today's society. And I think it's really, really, really important we understand some of these concepts, because if we don't and things start happening and it's just like, why are these things happening? I want us to have a good uh, grasp and understanding. So uh, tonight, the effects of the gospel, we're going to look at verses uh, 16 through 18. And uh, first, I just I want to start by saying that these messages that I did about like the effects of the gospel and, and Paul gives these like how to's like each verse is like how to do this and how to do that. It is not moralistic preaching. I want to, I want to make sure we start with that. It's not moralistic preaching, which is like do this good stuff and you earn really you know, a right relationship with God. That's not the point of the messages. OK. I want to, to, to clarify that, that these are, these are byproducts or the result of the gospel in our lives, as well as a guide to navigate through life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us some amazing just, just pearls of wisdom here, and it's all rooted in the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That the gospel does many things, and one of the things it does is that it changes us from the inside out, and we start to see a change in our everyday life and in how we handle situations. And so that's when Paul starts with this how-to list of several things. And so in verse 16, we're going to start with how to live in peace. How to live in peace. So in verse 16, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Another way to read that would be live in harmony with one another. And the term same-minded or harmony means peace, agree together, cherish the same views, and be like-minded. 
This is a very important thing. This is a very important point. And so we're going to kind of camp here for a little while because I want you to understand what's going on. So first and foremost, we have to, to start with the presupposition that we're all created in the image of God. Right? We all believe that. We believe that we're all created in the image of God, and yet we're all very different. Right? We're all very different in our appearance and our mannerisms and how we're wired. Right? Like, for instance, you all know Scott Kyle. Scott Kyle and I can eat the exact same things, and he looks the same, and my clothes get tighter. Like, it's just, it's not fair, and it's kind of annoying, to be honest with you. But it's just, we're all wired different, right? We're all, we all look different. And if we're, we, if we're all his image bearer, and we all look different, I think it just shows how great our God is, right? Like, our God is so good that he made us all look different because, and I think it's awesome because that also means that our God cannot be labeled into one particular type of person, right? He's not just some white guy with a white beard in the sky throwing lightning bolts. Like, that's not realistic. That's not reality. He doesn't fit a particular maker mold. And our diversity should unify us as Jesus is our source of all things. And all things were created for him and by him and through him according to John chapter 1. Right? Do we believe that? Okay, so I have to say this. Our diversity does not define us. The one who unites us is who defines us. Our diversity doesn't define us. The one who unites us is who gets to define us. In other words, no matter how different and diverse we are, we are joined together by the gospel. We are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And we should live in harmony, like this verse says, in, or be like-minded with each other as reconciled children of God. So now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how our society, our culture, is so focused right now on dividing us. So they preach this message and promote this this. this Utopia of unity. Okay? But what they're really presenting us is a counterfeit unity. And I'm going to, I'll preach a message on this one day when I have more time to prepare. But there's this, this counterfeit unity because all they're doing is focus on separation. They're focusing on pointing out all of our differences versus what unites us. And they're using many avenues like critical race theory. Intersectionality and being woke, W-O-K-E, woke. And unfortunately, it, I would say it's crept its way into church, but that's kind, of, that's kind of a nice way of saying it. Many churches have opened their arms to this man-made philosophies. And, it's, and these, these, these methods are more about bringing division instead of unity in the family of God. And it's only fair for me that if I'm going to use these terms, that I define what they mean. Okay? So I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> Please, no problem. Critical race theory, also known as CRT. Dr. Dinsbeer preached on this in December. If you were here on a Sunday night, he gave a very good interpretation of CRT, which is critical race theory. Critical race theory is the reason why math, M-A-T-H, math, Shakespeare and Dr. Seuss are being labeled as racist. CRT, thank you. 
CRT is the reason why Coca-Cola is training their employees to be less white. As the executive director of the G3 conference, Mr. Virgil Walker said during his Just Thinking podcast, he said, "Every and you need to go listen to this, by the way. Everywhere we look, from small companies to large corporations, from science to sports or education to entertainment, we are witnessing the breakneck speed of culturally accepted racism currently spelled C-R-T. Critical race theory gets its roots back It gets its roots in critical theory that was started in 1937 from the Frankfurt School's Institute of Social Research. This Frankfurt School was started by people with Marxist political views. That was their point, was Marxism. Their goal was to determine why human society, in its eyes, failed to live up to the promise of Marxist enlightenment and became what it is today, human society, as unequal, unjust, and largely uncaring. Marxism looks at society as the elite class or the oppressors and the oppressed and calls for socialist economy, which leads to a communist state. It also calls to remove the oppressors from power and give it to the oppressed in whatever means necessary. And I want you to remember those terms oppressors and oppressed as we continue. In the, 80s, in the 70s and 80s, a group t- game came together and began what's known as critical legal theory. And these were a group of men that were looking at laws and past legal decisions that they didn't agree with the outcomes of. And they looked at them and, and how it was presented as systematic racism in the legal system and that laws and government uh, bring social inequality. Not through objective standards or evidence, but just because they thought and felt that it did. In 1989, there was another meeting to to further CRT because they didn't feel the first one went far enough. And now it has grown to seeing systematic racism in literally everything. And the reason why it sees systematic racism in everything is because you view everything through the lenses of or your worldview is through the lenses of racism. According to Britannica, CRT is defined this way. Racial inequality emerges from the social, economic, and legal differences that white people create between races to maintain elite white interests in labor markets and politics, giving rise to poverty and criminality in many minority communities. CRT teaches that systematic racism built America and sustains America today. If you don't believe me, go and Google 1619 Project and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. As you can see, at least I hope you can see by what I just said, this is a Marxist movement of oppressors, which is defined as a white, male, straight, and Christian, versus oppressed which is minorities, and its goal and purpose is to destroy not only Judeo-Christian America, but because it's been welcomed in by evangelical churches, it's now working on dividing and destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. That's what it's doing. 
Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, a house divided against itself shall not stand. And if you don't know this, the devil knows his Bible really well. So he has sent CRT into churches to destroy and to conquer. Now we're going to go into intersectionality. Has anyone heard this term? Intersectionality. Now I want you to think about the intersections in the road. So out here we have Craven and Bay Meadows, right? There's an intersection there. It takes into account what makes you the most different and how that means you are discriminated against even more. So this is an offshoot of critical theory to now critical social theory. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. That's a big definition, right? I'll give you an example in just a second, okay? I promise. This was also adopted in 1989, which 89 must have been a really busy year for Marxism, uh, by Kimberly Crenshaw in a paper that she wrote for the University of Chicago Legal Forum. Crenshaw wrote that traditional feminist ideas and anti-racist policies excluded black women because they face overlapping discrimination unique to them. So let me give you an example of intersectionality to make it really easy for you to understand. Let's take this blanket term, women are discriminated against, right? Let's just take that one just just blanket term, women are discriminated against. Now add black women are discriminated against. And they're discriminated against more, right? Because now there's an intersection. They're black and they're a woman. Let's take it a step further. A gay black woman is discriminated against. Right? Now it's three times. Let's take it further. A Muslim gay black woman is discriminated against even more. What? Well, let's keep going. A Muslim gay black female transgendered is discriminated against. And shoot, let's just, let's just round it up to six. She's left-handed too. Okay? These are all intersections to where they are discriminated against. In their mind. And let me just go ahead and say this. This just brings more division. It creates more labels to categorize people as being more different. And it creates, remember the first one had that racist worldview? This one has a victim worldview. Everything that makes me a person makes me a victim. So now we have inequalities beyond race in our critical social theory model, which is still promotes the oppressed versus the oppressor Marxist agenda. And then we have wokeness. Being woke to racial divides and, force, and, and focuses on a social justice platform. Dictionary.com defines social justice as a fair treatment of all people in a society including respect for the rights of minorities and equitable distribution. Did you catch that? Equitable distribution of resources among members of a community. And y'all, this has been welcomed with open arms by mainstream megachurches in America. It became popular in churches when the book Woke Church, an urgent call for Christians in America to confront racism and injustice was released by Pastor Eric Church. It has created a social justice gospel that has replaced the actual gospel in the American church. 
It incorporates CRT, intersectionality, and really any and all philosophies of man. It specializes in white guilt. You may have heard of this. Or using the sins of the past and placing it on the people of today to bring shame and false sense of responsibility. Which is, number one, anti-gospel, and number two, anti-scripture. You see this used in black liberation theology as well. That reduces those with more melanin in their skin into a mindset of victimhood and bitterness. And it demands, thank you, and it demands reparations from those who are oppressing them, the white establishment. The social justice gospel is not the gospel. The social justice gospel, with a little g, by the way, because it doesn't deserve a capital G, it says that Jesus was a victim to his oppressors. The gospel says that Jesus willingly gave his life and it was God-ordained. The social justice gospel says that Jesus' resurrection from the dead represents a poor person's victory over poverty or a minority group over its oppressors. Jesus' resurrection shows that he has power over death and the grave, and it's by his resurrection that we are saved, according to the real gospel. The social justice gospel is about racial reconciliation, meaning our race is the most important thing to God. The gospel is about reconciling all man with God, and man-made race categories do not exist. Because we are one body in Christ, in love, in peace, and harmony. The social justice gospel is a weak, powerless, and godless. And it makes culture more important than scripture and is not the gospel. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is Jesus came to this earth, he died as a punishment for our sin, and he rose from the grave on the third day. And that brings unity, and that brings peace, and it places scripture over culture. The Bible addresses all this garbage, doesn't it? Does it not? Genesis 127. So God created man, mankind, not just this as a man, but all mankind in his own image. Meaning what? There is one race, the human race, according to God's word. Acts 17.26 says that, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. To live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. Meaning that, listen, he, <laughs> he made us all from Adam and Eve. We all have the same daddy. And if we examine the word of God and not the methods of culture, we see that we are one human race, one body in Christ. I mean, we had a VBS about this a few years ago, Right? We're all just different shades of brown. That's all we are. We're all the same. And then you talk about intersectionality. And let me tell you something. All those categories that separate us in that, they go away with Christ. Amen? According to Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is neither male or female. For all, for our, all, all one in Christ Jesus. All those things that separate us, they all go away because we are one body in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, it starts to talk about how Jesus brought peace and and has broken down the walls of hostility. And then Ephesians 2.16, he says that and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
All this stuff wants to create hostility, but through Jesus Christ, it destroys hostility. It destroys the separation because we are reconciled to God and to one another through the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we aren't defined by our differences, but by the one who unites us and unifies us all into one. The true, real unity is only found in Jesus Christ. And these are being taught in schools, in colleges, and in churches across America, corporations. And CRT, intersectionality and wokeness, I feel I can, I can speak on behalf of Brother Gary, is not welcome at Bay Meadows Baptist Church. Amen. Because here, scripture is sufficient. We don't need all the other stuff. So let's get back to scripture. Verse 16. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Another way to say that is, I love how this, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That word means proud, arrogant. If you look at the list of evil things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6, you want to know what number one is? Pride. Pride. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, pride and arrogance is at war with Christianity. We're going to read in a minute Philippians 2, but I'm just going to tell you, it, it, it describes how Jesus brought himself down in humility from heaven, put on the form of a servant, and put us and our need for salvation first. It's really hard to be proud when you put others first. Right, Brother Ronnie? Yes, sir. It's real hard to be proud when you put others first. It's hard to be proud when you realize that your sin, just like everyone else's, would have sent you to hell. But through Jesus' death on the cross, we are all saved by the same grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. Brother Gary preached about it this morning. You didn't do anything to earn it. Ephesians 2.9, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Why? Why? Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. And then Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Y'all, I would much be rather be exalted by Jesus Christ than by men, right? Is that not a billion times better for Jesus to say, this is my beloved Child, who I am well pleased. But see, some people take humility too far, right? Some people take it as a form of, of self-hate or a lower view of yourself. But Rick Warren said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. But I really like how C.S. Lewis said it a little bit better. He said, a really humble man will not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. <laughs> Isn't that good? If Christ is preeminent, meaning if he is before all things, if our goal is to make much of him and less of me, then arrogance isn't your problem. It says associate with the lowly. Another way to say that is make friends with those who seem unimportant or of low social status. See, we tend to associate with those that we can get or receive something back from. 
right? That's just, that's just how we're, we're wired. That's what we do. We seek out relationships that are fulfilling for ourselves. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying seek out a relationship with those that will not benefit you, but will bring great benefit to the other person. Did you catch that? Not going to benefit you, but will benefit them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46-47, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, some of y'all don't, don't really understand that saying. We don't like tax collectors now, to be honest with you. I don't like paying taxes. I don't know about y'all. When I got my first paycheck at 16, ask my mom. To this day, I complained about it. Like, seriously? Who's taking all my money? Right? <laughs> Amen. All right? But back in those days, tax collectors were like, looked at like terrorists. They turned on their own people. If the Roman government said, all right, give, take $20 in taxes, then they said, all right, well, I'll charge 60 and they keep the rest. You would rather be seen with a prostitute than a tax collector at that time. And Matthew was one of them, and yet he wrote it about himself. I love his humility, okay? He says, are not even the tax collectors, the low, dirty dog tax collectors, loving those who give it back? And if you greet only your own person, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do not even idol-worshiping, Satan-following people interact with other people that give it back to them? He's saying to seek them out the way Christ sought you. We didn't do anything in the salvation equation. Y'all remember this morning? We didn't do anything in the salvation equation. It was all him. And we should seek them out not to experience anything in return, but in a way to bless them in a way that they have never experienced before. And a real easy way to do that is to just be present in the moment. Be open for God to use you that way. Maybe get out of your phone for five seconds. I don't know. Put it down maybe. Turn it off. Maybe when someone comes into the church they've never seen before, you leave your click and go introduce yourself. Maybe you invite people from a restaurant. Maybe, Come to our church. We'd love to have you. And then it says, do not be wise in your own opinion. We have a lot of that, don't we? Don't be wise in your own opinion. <clears throat> Another way, never be wise in your own sight. But I think a really good way to say do not think how smart or wise or superior you are. Again, that's pride. But it goes a little further into being conceited. Conceited. Excessively proud of oneself. Or vain. Again, we need to go back to Jesus. What is Jesus? What's the example of Jesus? Philippians chapter 2. Flip over Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 11 real fast. Philippians 2. 3 through 11. <clears throat> Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Listen to this. Let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those of heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not about me. It's all about him. And if the point of Christianity is to be like Christ, then this is the blueprint. Is it not? Have the same mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is a other's first mentality. And if we have a Christ first life, then we'll do what he said. Love God, love others. Pride, conceited, superiority cannot coexist in an other's first mentality. It can't. Verse 17, how to react. This is a good one, y'all. How to react. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Another way to say that, if someone does wrong to you, do not pay him back by doing wrong to him. Try to do or carefully consider what everyone thinks is right or what others view as good honorable or noble in other words we don't try to get revenge or get someone back who wrongs us romans 12 21 says do not be overcome by evil but rather overcome evil with good verse uh, romans 12 14 bless those who persecute you persecute you bless do not curse why because we are not out for justice we're not A lot of times we hear the phrase, oh, they got what they deserve. I'm so thankful I didn't get what I deserved. Because <laughs> I deserve hell. We are not out for justice. We are carriers of grace. Because God didn't give us justice when we deserved it. He provided grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And listen, forgiven people, forgive. That's deep, right? Forgiven people forgive. By not repaying evil with evil, instead doing what is considered noble and good, we will have a great opportunity to share the gospel. Won't we? People will be amazed that you didn't react with retribution, but instead you show grace and forgiveness. They'll want to know why. Why didn't you get them back? Why didn't you post back to what they posted about you? Because you can say that Jesus forgave me of my sin that could send me to hell. I can forgive someone of anything. And most of the time, when we're wronged, our natural reaction is revenge. Right? That's natural. I'm going to get him back. Especially in traffic. It's my sin. I'll confess. 
My wife's like, amen. <laughs> however, <laughs> she got her mask on, can't read her lips. However, however, we can choose to not respond that way because through Jesus Christ, I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. <clears throat> my past actions don't have to dictate my future ones. Romans 6 says I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ. I don't have to react or pay back someone who wronged me. Instead, I get to choose the way of Christ and forgive and show grace and mercy. And when you feel like you're running out of grace and mercy, Jesus has plenty. He's willing to share. You might say, listen, I'm just not wired that way. You're right, you're not. But that's why Jesus comes and changes you from the inside out. Verse 18, how to behave. We'll wrap it up here. Verse 18, how to behave. How to behave. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as it depends on you. In other words, do your best to live in peace with everyone. And if we boil it down a little bit further, you can control you, so do it. You can control you, so do it. I don't know about y'all, but at my job right now, it has been crazy busy. Crazy busy. We've been short-staffed. It's just been crazy. And, and everyone's getting kind of chippy, you know, with each other. Getting a little, like, tight, a little tense. So I had to bring people in one at a time. We had a little conversation. We talked about things. And we, and we all decided that there's a lot of factors outside of our control. But what we can control is how we react to each situation. And this might be groundbreaking, but you can control how you react. You can. You can choose not to say what you really want to say. And I'm going to say something, and it needs to be written down. It's not about being right or making yourself feel better. It's about representing Jesus Christ. It's not about being right or making yourself feel better. It's about representing Jesus Christ. This verse is saying that whatever is in your power to keep the peace, that is what you need to do. So sometimes what that means, keep scrolling. Just keep scrolling. Don't even comment. There's an unfollow button. Did you know that? Push the unfollow button. You need to. It'll make your life feel better. Sometimes it's just keep on scrolling. Don't comment. Sometimes it's not sending the text or email. Right? This is what I do personally. I say everything I want to say, and then I hit the back button. It makes me feel good, but it keeps the peace. Right? Just don't do it. It may be a little bit harder. Maybe walking away from an argument... We're just not going to get to a conclusion. We need to walk away. Maybe it's walking away from a relationship to bring the peace. I can love from a distance. Amen? Guess not. All right. When I married, uh, when I married Raquel, my dad was my best man. Uh, my, my stepdad, Trent. <clears throat> he was my best man. And right before our wedding, remember it like it was yesterday, 
We're getting ready. We're getting our tuxes on and everything. And he looks at me and he says, all right, son, listen. In relation to my relationship with Raquel, he says, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Talking about our, our opportunities and arguments and things of that nature. So my kind of argument in my pride and arrogance was being right makes me happy. <laughs> Regardless of how it makes her feel. In my pride and arrogance, that was my response. So several years later, I'm listening to a preacher, and he's preaching about marriage. And he starts with the same thing. He says, he says do you want to be right? And I'm, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I got my counter-argument ready. I'm ready to go. I'm like, oh, but I like there. Come on, say it, say it, come on. He says, or do you want to be like Jesus? I'm like, man, why do you got to bring Jesus in it? Like, come on. You just killed my counter-argument. But it's not about being right or feeling good or happy. It's about representing Jesus Christ. And living at peace as far as it depends on you means that you have to go first. That means you have to apologize first. That means that you have to love first. And it means that you need to put others first. So the point of tonight is this. The power of the gospel brings unity, forgiveness, and humility into the life of a follower of Christ. <coughs> the power of the gospel brings unity, forgiveness, and humility into the life of a follower of Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we can uh, study your word, that we can know that it is sufficient <laughs> for every, every area of our lives. God, that we don't need man-made philosophy, and how dare we even try to put that up against the scripture, your scripture. That, that's ridiculous. God, I pray that we as a church will be aware of these things in our society and our culture so that we can combat them as a, as a, for spiritual warfare as a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray that we will... Know these things so that we can combat them and not allow them into the doors of this church. And I pray that we will spread the true unity that is found in Jesus Christ. I pray that we will share the true gospel. That there is absolute truth in this world and it is Jesus and I pray that we will share that and share that and share that and that people will see Jesus in us and how we love one another and how we react to one another and the fact that we don't seek revenge but instead seek forgiveness and peace. Help us to be a beacon of light for the gospel right here, right here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.